Brought to you by the Mary Christie Institute, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Institute. And I'm Dana Humphrey, the associate director of the Mary Christie Institute, and we're the hosts of the Quadcast. Welcome to the Quadcast. Today, I am again joined by a guest co-host, Carson Domi, for the last episode in our series on student-led advocacy and young adult health policy. Carson is a first-year student at University of Texas, Austin, and has been engaged in mental health advocacy for years already, both at his high school and at the state level with the Massachusetts State Legislature. So welcome back, Carson. We have another great guest today, and I will turn it over to you to introduce him. Thank you so much, Dana. And I know I'm so glad that we've been able to collaborate for so long on this project. I really hope that people have been able to get something out of it. We have Sam Jerry, who's a 21-year-old junior at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine. He's the co-founder of Kick It for a Cause, a charity kickball tournament toward nonprofit organization that supports suicide prevention. Sam is also an undergraduate research assistant at the Hamilton Lab. He is also a past member of the National Center for the Prevention of Youth Suicides Youth Advisory Board and is a Telocity Youth Ambassador. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, Sam. Yeah, thank you for having me. Could you give the audience a little background? What inspired you to become involved with mental health advocacy and suicide prevention? Certainly, yeah. So fortunately, unfortunately, and I think as is the case for many people, my journey in mental health advocacy was really inspired by my own personal experience. So back when I was in eighth grade, around the time where I was making the turn into high school, I felt a lot of burnout and specifically towards the game of golf. Golf at that point was something that I was really deep into. I really enjoyed playing the game. I loved playing competitively. I was really looking forward to playing for my high school's golf team. And I remember pretty suddenly just feeling like I didn't want to play anymore. And because I had been playing so much for such a long time, burnout certainly seemed plausible. So I made the decision to try to let it simmer down and hopefully resolve itself. Unfortunately, I could not have been more wrong. And what I thought was burnout pretty quickly turned into intense suicidality. It really felt like it it went from zero to 100. It was at that point when I, I quite obviously recognized that, all right, maybe this isn't burnout, maybe this is something deeper. And I reached out to my parents and a licensed professional for support. It really wasn't though until about two years after that. So right around my sophomore year, when I decided to share my personal story, specifically through a golf association that I was playing for in high school, gave its youth golfers an opportunity to uh, fundraise for a cause they were passionate about. For me, it was the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. And I kind of just let it all out. I, I really didn't hold anything back. And admittedly, I was probably a bit too brash when talking about especially my experiences with suicidality and depression and a bit of anxiety. But that really kicked things off for me. I was really lucky to garner a lot of support, especially within the golf community. And from there, it really sprouted into this really, uh, this entire mental health advocacy persona per se. With that being said, throughout my experience, what's it now, these past four or five years that I've been in advocacy, I've certainly gone through plenty of ups and downs. I still very much have depression. I still very much have anxiety. And I still experience suicidality quite often. My most recent hospitalization was in 2020, right before the pandemic, when I was placed into an outpatient hospitalization program or a partial hospitalization program. So not quite inpatient, but 
still very intensive therapy. But with that being said, throughout that time as well, I've also been incredibly fortunate to um, start things like Kick It, our charity kickball tournament supporting suicide prevention, and really just give back to my community in, in Woburn, Mass, where I'm from, also at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, but the greater Boston community as a whole. So been plenty of ups and downs along the way, but it's been a really fun ride so far. Thank you so much for sharing that. I really want to applaud you for your openness and transparency and people like you, people who are willing to share their personal stories, that's going to ultimately make a difference in terms of cultural change for mental health and really stepping out there and showing that it is okay to not be okay. And to kind of shift a little bit, could you tell the audience a little bit about your ongoing research endeavors and what excites you about some of those projects? I know we spoke a little bit prior to this, and I was just blown away by some of the research stuff that you were mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. So I've been really fortunate to to be quite heavily involved within research these really this past year. Probably the area in which I'm most involved, and you mentioned it in the introduction, was that I work as a remote research assistant at the Hamilton Lab at Rutgers University. The primary investigator is Dr. Jessica Hamilton. Um, and essentially what we study is how teen social media use and sleep patterns impact impact suicidality or suicidal thinking or suicidal behaviors. And that's been really fascinating, especially its applicability to my own world, obviously, with me and my myself just exiting my adolescence, but a lot of my friends and siblings going through their teen years and, and seeing how being in college, how very poor sleep patterns impact mental health as a whole, not just suicide or suicidal behaviors, and also social media use. Obviously, we've seen over the past couple of years how integral social media has become to the lives of really everyone, but especially teens and young adults. And that's been really interesting, not only to learn the negatives, but also the positives of social media use. You know, a lot of times we hear about the negatives that come with social media. And obviously, there are plenty, whether it be doom scrolling and wasting time or comparing, um, uh, comparing to other individuals, other peers, in a way that's quite unrealistic, given that people aren't as authentic as maybe we wish they were on social media. But also social media has this really interesting way in which we're able to build community and make connections that otherwise weren't possible. Say, for example, without social media, Carson, you and myself would have never been able to meet. And I very much consider this to be a really powerful relationship and really powerful friendship and, and partnership. So it's really fascinating to to learn about how nuanced both sleep, social media, and obviously suicidal behaviors can be. I'm also working as a research assistant, or I was working as an independent researcher up at Bates, where I go to school. This summer, I worked on a fellowship where we were studying how multilingual individuals really kind of navigate the mental health system and what challenges they face when trying to regulate their emotions. And really what we found is that it's significantly more challenging than people might expect, especially when it comes to logistics, say, whether it be finding culturally competent therapists or th therapists that speak in the individual's primary language, assuming that they prefer to speak in that language. There are really just so many incredible barriers that these individuals face. And that's not even including the power dynamics that exist within those therapy sessions that may impact therapy as a whole for multilingual, bilingual individuals. And then, but recently just working on a, not necessarily a smaller project, but a smaller role with Dr. Kathy Lowe at Bates College, where we are 
kind of looking at what stressors exist for high school students in Maine, how COVID-19 has impacted that, how social media plays into that, just understanding what stressors exist for high schoolers within Maine and, and how they cope with those stressors. That's what I've been up to kind of this past year. Sam, I just want to take a second to applaud you. That is you sound like you're very busy. And those research projects are all really interesting. And I'm definitely going to follow up after this conversation to learn more about those labs. And, you know, we're always covering different research at, at MCI. So I'd love to learn more about those. But I just wanted to take a moment to talk about a few of the pieces on your biography that I hadn't heard about and just give you a second to talk more about that. Specifically, the unsinkable youth and the telocity. Could you talk a little bit about those organizations and your work with them? Yeah, so unsinkable is really an organization that that's been really close to my heart for about two years now. So they're based out of Canada. They're a completely remote company or a completely virtual company. So they don't have like an HQ in any specific area. But it was founded by Silken Lauman, who was an Olympic crew member for Team Canada. And essentially, the objective is to support teen and adolescent whole health with a pretty specific focus on mental health. My role within that space is that I was really fortunate to be able to work as a council lead. So essentially what that entails is we have two youth councils, one that is a younger age group for I believe it's kids age about 10 to 13 or 14. And then we have our high school and college age council, which is the one that I lead. And essentially what we're doing is to educate our council members about best practices as far as supporting their mental well-being, but also how to take what they're learning and apply it into their community. And the way in which we do that is we really do that by at the end of every council term, we have them create an end of year project where they're able to go out into their communities or go out into kind of the social media community that we've built and share what they're passionate about. And for some kids, it's very specifically focused on mental health or a specific aspect of mental health. But for some people, it's it's something else. Some, it might be climate change. Others, it, it may be other important causes to them. So that's really cool to see, really just empowering them as much as we possibly can to take a stand for what they're passionate about and then go do it and then go apply it. So that's been a lot of fun to be a part of. Also on the Telocity side of things, I've been really, really fortunate to work as a as a youth ambassador for them. And essentially um, what they focus on is essentially they fund mental health startups, specifically mental health startup apps. And we as youth are able to really provide our input and see, you know, say what we don't like, what we do like in these apps. Kind of one thing that we've noticed over, or at least that I've noticed over the past couple of years is that there are a lot of mental health companies who try to get away with things that they think that teens or other people won't notice. So it's kind of our opportunity to say like, oh, maybe you thought you could get away with this, but you can't. Or maybe you think you can, maybe a better way of saying it is there have been a few mental health, virtual mental health companies or, or mental health apps that say, for example, not necessarily a name drop, but I will anyways, like a, a better help where their model isn't great for what we know about supporting mental health. And it's pretty inaccessible as well. They don't accept insurance. They're admittedly, their therapists or their counselors are, have been treated really poorly historically, and they've made a really few big missteps, especially back a couple of years ago, I think three or four years ago, they found themselves in a lot of controversy. And and what we're able to do is we're able to really say that this is inaccessible, or this just isn't working, or this isn't something that will appeal to teens. And in that way, we're really able to 
um, strengthen the work of these individuals who want to make a difference and are working to make the, the difference through their apps, and then ultimately put out the best product that we possibly can. So given that a majority of the audience for the quadcast are leaders in education, with all of your experience, both personal and in research, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about something that you wish leadership, decision makers, faculty, etc., understand more about mental health to kind of help them be as informed as possible in their decision making. Absolutely. The educational spaces that I've been in, when supporting student mental health, they tend to put all of their eggs into one basket. And that's usually through the form of like a CAPS or counseling and psychological services. And unquestionably, we need that. That is a really valuable resource that schools can offer. And admittedly, even those services are under-resourced and underfunded. But I think it's also really important to acknowledge that supporting student mental health comes far before the students show signs of psychological distress. Say, for example, financial hardship that can most certainly contribute to student stress and can contribute to mental unwell-being. That's a bad way of phrasing it. But it's not necessarily so much so much about really waiting until the last second. It's more so about more preventative than anything. So say a lot of students dealing with academic stress. All right, how can we address that academic stress? So students can get to the point where they need to immediately go to caps. Same thing with financial stress. If students, whether it's first generation students or low income students, or really just any student at all, if students are dealing with financial insecurity, or even housing insecurity, that is going to lead to a lot of stress down the line. And it may hurt their performance academically. And from there, it just kind of snowballs to the point where they are not mentally well. With that being said, however, like I was saying before, those CAP services absolutely need to be resourced and they need to be funded. I think one problem that I've run into, especially at Bates, is merely having the CAP service is a bit of a check mark and is not necessarily performative because I think they're doing really good work. But after speaking with the former director of CAPS and other counselors in the space, it's very clear how horribly under-resourced they are and they just can't support the entire student body. At Bates, we have a small, very small student body, which is about 1,800 students. And we just cannot support all of those students. So really making sure we're doing a better job of preventative care, for lack of better terms, supporting students academically, financially, housing-wise, everything in that sense. And then also making sure that we're doing our job really where it matters in the cap space. So hopefully that all makes sense. Yes, definitely. Thanks so much for describing that. I want to give you a chance to say any last comments about the work that you do with mental health research and advocacy, if you have any last comments to share. Yeah, absolutely. If you'd like to learn more about the work that I'm doing at Kick It, you can find our website at kickitforacause.org. Also on Instagram at kickitforacause. If you'd like to learn more about me, you can find me at Sam V. Gary on Twitter or on Instagram. And then some of the research work I do, if you're interested in learning more generally about the work that I'm doing at the Hamilton Lab, you can find us at thehamiltonlab.org, which is that research work that I've been doing at Rutgers University. Thanks so much, Sam, for talking to us today and also for all of the great work that you're you're doing. And Carson, I just want to take a moment to say thank you so much for joining me on this series as co-host. It has been so fun to work with you and get to know you better. I think at this point, 
our listeners know you very well, but you're just such an impressive young person. When I started this series, when we started this series back when you were a senior in high school, it was already amazing all the work that you had done at that point. And I know that just continues. So thank you so much for joining me on this series. Thank you, Dana. I really appreciate it. Sam, thank you for coming on and doing this. I really think it was a great episode. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Institute. To learn more about our work, go to marychristieinstitute.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, like the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening.